you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14. Let's pray. Fathers, we bow before you again, Lord. We have thought a great deal about this week, a great deal about the resurrection of Christ throughout the week, and in particular Friday and yesterday and today. We are very much aware, Lord, that if Christ had not been raised from the dead, that everything we do would be absolutely useless and meaningless. We know, Lord, that we have a future because of the resurrection of Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would never take that for granted. We pray, Lord, that it would always have and always be meaningful to us, impactful to us, knowing, Lord, that when the time comes that it ceases to be, it's because we are drifting from you. And so, Father, we pray that we would be filled with a sense of hope, a sense of the reality that Christ is alive, that he is our Savior, and that he is our help. Father, I ask this morning as we look at your word that we pray that your spirit would communicate to us Christ. And, Father, you would help us to see him, and you help us, Father, to know him. We thank you, Lord, again for being here with us this morning. We thank you, Father, again for preserving your word for us that we may know and that we may understand. And so we thank you and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we prepare to read from the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that uh, I've been thinking about that I want us to think about this morning is the reality of who Jesus is. And what I mean by that is more and more it seems, and I think we are aware of it, that people are turning away from religion, in particular, they're turning away from Christ. You have more and more Christians who are becoming disinterested, disinterested in church, disinterested in the Bible, disinterested in prayer, disinterested in whatever it is that, that we've kind of grown accustomed to that God offers us through his word. A lot of different reasons for that. I think a major part of that is a misunderstanding of what faith and what believing in Christ, what that really means. We are caught up in this day and age where we we want to, and people will say this, well, I want to experience Christ. And what they mean by that is they, they want to have some kind of a mystical, but also a euphoric feeling that Christ is alive, that Christ is for them. But the emphasis on that is really is the feeling of euphoria. There's, there's no interest in holiness. There's no interest in whatever the things that God is interested in. It's, it's pretty much in making us feel better. I think part of that is because we, no matter what's going on around us, no matter how good things are for us, uh, there's always a desire and a quest for happiness, for more happiness. Maybe that desire is there because deep down there really is much more sadness than there was before. I'm not sure, but, but we're, we live in a, t- a day and age where we are accustomed to receiving things and experiencing things almost immediately. You feel bad, you want pain relief, you can take a pill, take an injection, and it's pretty much immediate. And, and we are accustomed to that. Uh, when it comes to sadness, we want to be happy. We'll be happy now. Uh, when it comes to certain kinds of sadness, I think sometimes people misunderstand what it is we want. We, we want comfort, that's good, 
Some people think that what that means is, is you forget the pain or somehow that you immediately become happy. I don't think, that's not necessarily comfort in all of that. If, you know, if you, if you have a, one you're very close to and that person passes away, you're not desiring to be happy the next moment. And that would almost seem odd and almost maybe disrespectful to the one who's passed on if you were suddenly happy the next moment. Uh, you just want someone there with you. You want those who understand to share your grief. There's real comfort in all of that. And the reason why I bring all that out is because when it comes to the life that we live as individuals, when it comes to who Christ is, I think that often we don't really understand the comfort and the presence of Christ in our life. We're looking for the instant feeling of euphoria. We're not looking necessarily for one who understands our pain. We, we say those words, but I'm not sure we really, what we really mean that. We, we want to be delivered out of our trouble, which means that our trouble just kind of goes away. And so when it comes to this desire for this almost instantaneous kind of feeling, then it seems like the church really has nothing to offer. Jesus doesn't really have much for me. I mean, the fact that he has risen from the dead, it almost then is reduced to an event, to a, a historical event where I can read about it, out of either a sentence or a paragraph in a thick textbook. You know, I read about the attack on Pearl Harbor in World War II. I don't really have any feelings about that any longer. It's an interesting fact of history, but that's really all that it is. And for many people... When it comes to the resurrection of Christ, that's almost all that it is. We don't always admit that or say that because that doesn't sound right. We don't want anyone else to think that or to know we're thinking that way, but that's kind of really all that there is. So we don't spend a lot of time really thinking about Christ, about who he is. You see, when we believe in Christ and we talk about believing him by faith, when it comes to the fact that he is now alive, Again, that's not just a, some fact at a, in a distance. It is to have an effect on me as an individual. I think that coupled with the presence, the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God in my life, then I will experience real comfort. I will be able to experience the truths of the Word of God. I want you, I want you to experience the truth of the Word of God. And the way that that's going to be developed is by us having a better understanding of what the Scripture communicates to us. That then, working with the presence of the Spirit of God in your life, we believing that by faith, then has an effect, a profound effect on our attitudes, on the way we feel, on the way we make decisions, all those things. So it doesn't bring necessarily instant happiness, though there will be happiness. I believe our happiness is increased because of that. Our sorrow at times will be increased because of that. But there is also that very real comfort. So I say all those things to help us to understand that as we look this morning and we read the scripture, what we're going to be emphasizing is a title that is often used for Jesus Christ. He was a man of sorrows. Throughout the world, many human beings, their, their life, when you, when you add up their life, whether they live 50 years or 70 years or 80 years, there's a great deal of sadness in that life. There's a great deal of sorrow. I mean, throughout your life, there are people that you know that die. That's sorrow. Throughout your life, we know we experience various 
aspects of physical pain, emotional pain, betrayal. I mean, just all types of things, the various things that cause us to worry and anxiety, whether it's about ourselves or about our family and about relationships with the world as a whole. And so what we need to recognize is that God truly does understand. We will be delivered from all these things one day. That's really going to happen. And it's going to happen because he's alive. But there's also a deliverance in these things where the presence of God in your life and my life does make a very real difference in how we handle and experience the life that God has led us to live. And I, and I want you, uh, and I want myself, I want to be able to experience the presence of God. Again, it's not necessarily some mystical thing, but it, it can be and it is very profound. It's not necessarily wrapped up in your emotions, but it can affect you emotionally. So looking at Mark 14, beginning in verse 27, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you today that even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you, deny you. And they all said likewise. Then they came to a place which was called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here, sit here a while uh, while I go pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrow, sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther fell on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now, just, we don't have time to get into all this, and we have t- discussed this before, because there's this misunderstanding that is out there in our society, and there will be those who will even this morning say this, that when Jesus is praying this, and he asked for this cup to pass that he was realizing he was going to die soon and he was afraid to die. And that's not what's going on here. Jesus is not afraid to die. He's been talking about him coming and dying. He is, in a sense, looking forward to dying because he understands what it's going to accomplish. That's not what's happening. He is exceedingly sorrowful because there is some aspect of this that is even worse than death. And that he's, he's going to experience the wrath of God. And we've, again, we will discuss that in much more detail at another time. But this sorrow and this anguish suddenly comes upon him. In verse 30 of Matthew 26, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they have the Passover meal, and Christ has been betrayed. And then in verse 36, it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And again it says, And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Now the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, that is proclaimed in the four gospels. And the the cross of Jesus Christ is the center of that message. There is an emphasis on the sufferings of Christ. Again, he's presented to us as a man of sorrows. In verse 37 of Matthew 26, when it says he began uh, to be sorrowful in the original language that indicates a sudden and a steep descent into the billows or the clouds of distress. So it suddenly overwhelms him. It suddenly hits him at that moment like a ton of bricks. 
When they had left the upper room, they were singing a hymn, but now the singing had stopped. Instead of sense of peace and an awful anguish suddenly grips the soul of Jesus Christ. Again in Mark 14, it says he took Peter, James, and John, and, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he told them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. The phrase exceedingly sorrowful in the, again, in the original implies a sudden and a horrifying alarm at a terrific object. Something approached him which threatened to rend his nerves. And again, what is the unexpected horror? I believe it's the cup of God's wrath. And there's a detailed study you can do when you go through the prophecies concerning Christ and him understanding that he was going to experience death and the anguish of death and the crucifixion. He understood that. But it seems that the idea of this, of, of the details as a human being, of experiencing the wrath of God was something that seemed to be revealed to him as a man later. And as he came to understand this, it was a terrifying thing. It's hard for us to understand that because we're born spiritually dead. So we don't really have that connection with God, so to speak, like Christ had had for eternity. And so when this, when this overwhelms him, there's this, this sense of anguish that is just really terrifying to him as an individual. Again, he's not dissuaded from following through. He's not trying to find another way uh, for a man to be saved. He's fully aware that there's, this is the only way it's going to happen. And he's, he's facing, he's going to go through this. But he, is, he, he identifies all of this anguish that he's experiencing. And so as we read through these, we need to remember really the humanness of Christ. Yes, he is the Son of God. And yes, we, we always emphasize the deity of Christ. And he is that. But we want to make sure that we never minimize his humanity. Remember, he's, he, he did not come here and when he took on human flesh, he wasn't playing the part in a movie where he was pretending to be human and pretending to be sorrowful. And then when it was all over, someone says, cut, that's a wrap. And then you go out there and, you know, have another dinner. He, he, he experienced everything that we experience in reality as a human being because that's what he had become, human. It's difficult for us to grasp that because he was still God. He never ceased being God, but he became fully human in every way. Without sin, but fully human. So remember that without sin doesn't mean that he didn't really experience anguish and grief. He really did. So when we then come to Christ and we pour our heart when we are experiencing great anguish and grief, he really does understand. This is not a being who is coldly sitting high in the heavens, distanced from us, and patting us on the head saying, well, you'll get over it soon. That's not how he is. When you watch a mother or a father with their child when they're hurt or when they're hurt very deeply, you don't see the mother and father just kind of pat them on the head and say, it'll be okay. Unless, of course, it's a minor thing and they're being a drama queen, then we might do that. But when there's something that's real, we embrace them. We even hurt with them. And we hold them close to comfort them because we identify with their pain, with, with, their, with their fear, because we love them, because of the relationship that we have with them. Christ has that for us. And so it's important for us to remember and to recognize the reality of what he's going through. The language that's used here is very vivid and very forceful. It indicates that there is a tormenting, <coughs> excuse me, a tormenting of his soul, a very, very intense anguish. Again, he says the words, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. We do understand that Christ 
was not a drama queen. He wasn't trying to draw attention to himself. He was expressing accurately what it was that he was experiencing. So after this feast, the Passover feast, Christ was suddenly plunged into an abyss of anguish, so intense that he declared himself overwhelmed to the point of death. So there was a blackness where it was almost as if there was, he was at that moment experiencing no hope. For some individuals today who experience no hope, for them, killing themselves seems like a good option. Because, it, it, because what they're feeling is so intense. It is so bad. They, they just All they want and all they can think about is just relief. That's all they can think about. And, they, and so it affects even the way they think. They don't see any way out. They don't see any hope, any comfort. And so they then think death is better than experiencing this. Now Christ wasn't suicidal, but that's what he was experiencing. That kind of hopelessness. The scripture tells us, though, that when Jesus goes through this, this is not a novice to where his whole life was a life of glee and happiness, and then all of a sudden he's facing these dark times. Because the Bible describes him as a man who's well acquainted with grief. Throughout his life, he was acquainted with sorrow. He experienced sorrow. He saw sorrow on a, on a daily basis. He, was, he truly had a soft heart for others. He, you know, when he, when he healed the many, many, many that came to him, he saw the agony and the grief of whatever it was that was wreaking havoc in the life of the individual and the family. He truly understood every aspect of their pain and agony. Isaiah 53 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root at a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So this gives to us more insight from the book of Isaiah about the life of Jesus Christ. It describes him. <coughs> excuse me. It describes him in more detail for us, telling us first of all that there was nothing about him physically that would draw people to him. He wasn't walking around as the best-looking man in Israel. He looked like just about everybody else, maybe a little more homely, so to speak, because there was nothing about him physically where people said, "Whoa." I, I, that guy's got so much confidence, I want to follow him. Or, oh, look at this guy, he's tall. You know, he looks like a natural leader. Let's follow him. That, that wasn't going on. But along with that, it then goes the next step and tells us how others felt about him. Again, it says when we saw him, there was nothing in his appearance that made us desire him or feel attracted to him. Uh, in the Amplified, let me read that to you. It says, for the servant of God grew up before him like a tender plant and like a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, royal or kingly pomp, that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected, forsaken by men, a man of sorrows and pain, and acquainted with grief and sickness. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not appreciate him, his worth, or have any esteem for him. The idea was that he found no sympathy from men, including men of rank and influence. Maybe, maybe those who were above the fray, above the pain, and had the ability to, to not be caught up in their own sorrow and their own grief. They could look at this man, and they were not moved at all. They had no sympathy. 
In fact, the leaders of, of Israel withdrew their hands from him. They drew back and away from him. There was no one of any distinction at his side in whatever he went through. Again, when it says he was a man of sorrows, he was a man of sorrows in all forms. In fact, that was a chief distinction of Christ, was he was a man of sorrow. His life was one of constant painful endurance. Now, when we say that, because some people have written some things about Christ and say, well, you know, you know, Christ, you know, we, we think Christ was, was, was a happy man, that we don't really see a lot of happiness in his life. Well, I know that he was content, and I don't think that there were, there were not moments of levity. I think there were. But he was here, his whole life was dedicated to a very serious mission, which was, was to redeem man to God, and he understood what that was going to cost. <coughs> Excuse me. Again, he was a man who, because of the constant pain that he endured and understood, he was a man of endurance. There was a great strength that was there. So the man's reaction to Jesus, this man of sorrows, when they saw him, was to hide their faces from him. They couldn't bear to look at him, so to speak. And that was Christ. I'll never forget, I had an encounter with a, a woman once. I was uh, managing a Christian bookstore. This is back in Hawaii, where I grew up. And she was, uh, she was really angry, and she was mad at me. Uh, in, the, in the bookstore, we, there was a, it was over a comic book. Uh, in the comic book, there was a section where one of the characters is basically explaining the gospel to another character. And so in the panels in the comic book, there's these drawings of the trial of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ. And when it came to the, to the panel of, the, of Jesus Christ on the cross, it was very graphic. I mean, the, 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 the drawing, the artist had portrayed Christ as a man whose flesh had been just ripped from his body, and it was just a, it was a bloody pulp of a mess. And it was, it was actually very accurate. And she was mad. And she wanted me to know she was mad. And she was mad that we would sell a comic book that had that in it. And she said, that is not what my Jesus looked like. My Jesus was beautiful. She went on and on. And I... Being young and naive, I said, well, you do know that's accurate. <laughs> As if she needed to know that. You know, that's exactly what, when he was beaten and went to the cross, and she said, no, that is disgusting. And so then being the, uh, wanting to be helpful, I said, well, you know, in the book of Isaiah, it tells us that not only was he all these things, he was just a common guy. There was nothing about him that would draw anybody to him. So he wasn't a good-looking man at all. And at that, she took a step back. <gasps> as if I had committed blasphemy. And she was just beside herself. Uh, with just, could, just couldn't believe that I would say those things. And there are those that kind of have this kind of a, a bubble image of Christ and his beauty. And it's almost as if when he hung on the cross... You know, because I've seen, you know, I'm sure you've seen lots and lots of artist drawings and renditions of Christ on the cross, and he doesn't always look like he's suffering a lot. I mean, he is and he's not, and it's, you know, I said, ah, there's, you know, he wasn't, you know, kind of being crucified because he missed Sunday school. I said he was being tortured and beat because of the hatred of man, and God placed on him our sin, and went through all of that, and of course she then was offended that I thought somehow she didn't know that, and and so then she 
uh, and she left in disgust. So she was a very unsatisfied customer that day. But there are many individuals who, who again, have this kind of a strange idea of Christ. And, and it's not that we have to dwell on that, though we at times should think about that. But this is the man who identifies with us. He understands the pain and the sorrow that we experience. And he had, he had built up a, a long, a, a, a standing strength, this, this endurance, that he could endure this because he endured so much sorrow and pain. That, that is our Savior. That is our Christ. The death of Christ is different from every other death. Not only must Jesus experience physical death, but he also must taste eternal death and damnation and separation from God. Although he was accustomed to sorrow, it is being communicated to us that this was a new and a greater kind of sorrow in intensity. Now, if you back up a little bit, when he was having the Passover meal with his, with his disciples, you know during that meal there's four cups of wine. The four cups of wine represent the expressions of deliverance that you find in the book of Exodus chapter 6. So the cups of wine kind of have a name. The first cup is, I will bring out. The second cup is, I will deliver. The third cup is, I will redeem. And the fourth cup is, I will take. So the third cup of wine is taken after the meal. That's the cup of redemption. That reminds us of the shed blood of the innocent lamb. That is the cup that Jesus took. Luke 22, verse 20. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So there was not just any cup, it was the cup of redemption from slavery to freedom. That is our communion cup. Jesus also said, again corresponding to Exodus 6, where it says, I will redeem you. That that was the cup that represented the new covenant in his blood. Jesus raised that cup with the disciples and he drank it. That cup was, beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane, was now actual. And he was to endure the cup of God's wrath. As we think about the agony of Christ we are at times again so concerned to defend the deity of Christ that we hardly know how to handle his humanity. But he suffered in silence. In Matthew 26, it talks about three different times when Christ went and prayed to the Lord. There doesn't say anything about there being an answer. I'm not saying there was an answer. I'm not saying that there wasn't an answer. But in verse 44, it says he left them and went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same words. I believe that there was a period of time when he was suffering the silence of heaven. It doesn't mean that one is abandoned, but heaven is silent. Jesus cast himself in, on, onto the Father, but there was no, no answer. Heaven is silent, and it can seem that an, an individual is being pushed away. But in Hebrews chapter 5, beginning of verse 6, it reads this way. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having perfected, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So God the Father was not indifferent to the prayers of Christ because it says clearly that he was heard. He was heard because of his godly fear. The sorrow and the anguish that suddenly came upon Christ, though he was accustomed to sorrow, was new and greater in intensity. He was to endure the cup of God's wrath, which meant that he was to suffer the silence of heaven. In this, it says he learned obedience. Not that he needed correction, but he learned the cost of obedience. 
As a, as a man, he understood the cost of obedience. It cost him his life and the suffering. He understood the learning. He understood learning the full meaning of the cost of obedience through this great suffering. I've mentioned over the past several weeks, both in Sunday school and on Sunday morning, that there are times that we don't really recognize the full cost of following Christ. Because there are times where within our families there may be misunderstandings or uh, a misunderstanding of Scripture or maybe outright disobedience to what the Word of God says. And we sometimes are going to have to kind of either make a stand or not make a stand. And we're fearful that we're going to lose the relationship with that individual. And we immediately, sometimes without thinking, compromise what the Word of God says. It's hard to describe the kinds of things that can take place with all of that, but one of the things that, that, I, that I've used as an illustration with that is, let's say your son comes home and he says, I want you to meet the, end of the girl I want to marry. And let's say that your son is a believer, and let's say it's clear she's a non-believer. So we'll make this really easy. She's a non-believer. Your son wants your blessing. And you're a Christian. We'll make it even harder. She's a nice lady. She's terrific. Great personality. You can't even believe someone like that likes your son, much less loves him. You know, so this, this is just really, this is incredible. But she's not a Christian. In fact, she may even, you know, let this say that in the nicest way possible, she says, ah, you know, I was kind of raised in an atheistic home and I don't mind that your son believes in God. I'm not opposed to that. But she doesn't believe in God. And your son wants your blessing. What do you do? Now, I'm not saying that you have to take a, stance, take a step back and say, you filthy dog. You know, we're not saying that you have to do that. You can be nice, but I don't think you can give him your blessing. You can't. How would you do that? I do believe. And I'm not saying you have to make, you know, you have to communicate at that moment. There's all kinds of things that come to that situation. But in the end, you can't bless that. You can't give them your blessing. And in all of that, we're, we are at this point. Are we going to obey Christ at the cost of maybe your son rejecting you because of that? Or are you going to say, well, God, to understand and give your blessing? That's hard. It's very difficult. Jesus understands what that's like. He really does. There can be a lot of pain with that because there's no guarantee that if you do the right thing as a Christian, that your son will respond correctly. There's no guarantee of that. And that often means that you then will be carrying sorrow in your life maybe for the next 10, 20, 30 years. There's going to be that tension in the family. That doesn't mean you won't have Christmases together. It could be lots of things. It doesn't mean that all those things will be gone, but there's going to be that tension. There's going to be that sorrow. And so here Christ learned the cost of obedience through this great suffering. He expressed to his disciples that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine and was at Passover until the day when he would drink it with them anew in heaven. That's why it says in 27, he took the cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink all of this, uh, drink from this all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from, uh, from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
So we know that Jesus died to save us from our sin, but it wasn't enough for him to die. His blood had to pour out through his wounds in his hands, feet, and side, and the thorn marks on his head. The blood running out of Christ graphically demonstrated that the life was flowing out of him as he offered himself as the final sacrifice for sin. The importance of the cup is to remind believers of his blood, which, shed on our be- which was shed on our behalf. The Greek word that is translated shed is a key word in understanding this because it means to gush and to pour out. Obviously, we are saved through Christ's death. There's nothing in the chemistry of the blood of Christ that saves us, but his blood needed to be poured out to be shed because that's the only kind of sacrifice that God accepted. And the only kind is those that were the blood had been poured out. Jesus is also saying to keep celebrating that until he shares it with us in the kingdom. So we celebrate that aspect of his life and of his death until he comes again. He was giving the disciples tragic news about the pouring out of his blood. And so he injected for them the promise that he would come back one day and drink the cup with him in his kingdom. I know you may not be aware of this just because you haven't thought about it, but this is important. There are many in the world today, believers who are gathering to celebrate communion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they know that where they are right now, at any moment, someone can show up and kill them. We don't face that. They're going to get together anyway. Because they they love the Lord. And they want to worship the Lord. And they trust the Lord whether they make it through that service or not. Psalm 116.13 says, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. The cup of salvation means the cup by which his sense of the greatness of the salvation might be expressed, the cup of thanksgiving. The psalmist says how he can and will give thanks to his deliverer by using a figure taken from the Passover, the memorial meal and celebration of the redemption out of Egypt. The cup of salvation is that which is raised aloft and drunk amidst thanksgiving for the manifold and abundant salvation experience. That is what we're going to do today. In just a few moments, we are going to partake together of communion. And we are to do so out of a sense of great gratefulness and thanksgiving to God for what he's done for us. That this man lived this way, acquainted with grief, and then uh, took on this intensity (coughs) of anguish that came upon him for our sake. Because he loved us. So that we can be reconciled to him and our Father in heaven. If the men would make their way to the front... I want to share with you a story that I, that I, that I shared, uh, I think, a couple times before. This, I shared with this, I think the last time was about six or seven years ago. But while they're coming, let me just remind you of these things. Number one, if you are not a Christian, or you are not sure that you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, remember that the partaking of communion will not save you. So don't think that if you partake of this, that this will make you spiritual or make you saved. It won't. In fact, you actually end up making a mockery of of Christ and what he's done. And so I would encourage you to not not take. If you find that you've not, as a believer, you've not been depending upon Christ as you ought to, and you find that you're caught up in sin, the partaking of communion is not going to earn you credit with God. He's not going to say, well, I'm just going to pretend you haven't done those things because, look, you took communion. Now, what he desires us to do is to confess our sin. In a sense, we do this often, renew ourselves again, make ourselves right with God, because we want to live rightly for him. But we need to remember that 
There is no credit, there's no forgiveness of sins by the partaking of communion. We do this because our sins are forgiven, because we do belong to him, because we know that we're going to heaven. And we do so out of reverence to him, out of obedience, and again, remembering what he's done for us, what he's doing for us now, and what he'll do for us in the future. But to emphasize the acceptance that we have with God, which is only because of the work of Jesus Christ, I want to remind you of an event that took place in 1916. This is how most burials would take place of royalty in Austria for hundreds of years. They, I don't know if they do this any longer, but the last uh, imperial funeral in, Aust- in Austria took place in 1916. The emperor's name was Franz Joseph I of Austria. He died at the age of 86. He reigned for 66 years and he was buried. The custom, <coughs> excuse me, there is this. After the memorial service, there would be a very long procession and they would walk to where he would be entombed. The long profession, uh, procession would leave the church and it would make its way to the family crypt. This procession was, ha- was large. There were dress bands, torch bearers. There was all kinds of members of the clergy throughout the procession. All the family would be together. Then behind all of them would be the mourners uh, who would be following behind, walking slowly, and the pallbearers who were carrying the casket on their shoulders, all marching in silence towards the family crypt, which was about two miles away. Finally, as they near the crypt, they stop, and there's these two large iron doors or gates that are shut, and they're locked, and there's no way for them to get in. So the one who's called the marshal of the court, he takes out his sword, he turns it around, he takes the end of the sword, and he pounds on the door, and commands for the door to be open. The door doesn't unlock. There's a voice. And the voice says, who goes there? With the marshal, he's prepared for this. He gives the answer. We bear the remains of his imperial and apostolic majesty, Franz Joseph I, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, defender of the faith, Prince of Bohemia, Grand Duke of Lombardy, Sovereign of Venezia, Duke of Styra, and there's 37 titles, and he goes on. When he finally finishes, the door doesn't unlock. The voice says, we don't know who he is. There's silence. Then again, open. The door doesn't open. Again, the voice. Who goes there? His Majesty Franz Joseph I. He is immensely popular with his people. He has done so much for them. He has raised their standard of living. His subjects enjoy him and adore him. Yes, he is Emperor of Austria and the Apostolic King of Hungary, but he's also the beloved son of Archduke Franz Karl, the husband of his Elizabeth, the daughter of the Duke of Maximilian of Bavaria. He is the father of Rudolf, the father of three daughters, and on and on. The voice says, we don't know him. Long pause. It was quiet. And then, <laughs> open. Who goes there? This time the marshal answers. The body 
of Franz Joseph, our brother, an unworthy sinner like us all who has trusted Christ. And the gate key turns and the gates are open. And the voice says, come and enter your rest. Remember, when we ask the question, who may come today, it will never be by our accomplishments, titles, rewards, degrees, or the honors from men. It's only those who have trusted Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, if the procession was carrying your body, how would they answer He was a member in good standing, a lifelong member. He was a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a lifelong Baptist, a doer of good. He founded charities and foundations. The voice would be, you're unknown. How do we come? We come as unworthy sinners who trusted in Christ, who have believed Christ is and what Christ has said and what Christ has done. We have received the grace of Christ, the graces gracious gift of salvation. And if that is true of you, then we invite you today to share with us as we remember the sacrifice and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All here today who have trusted Christ and Christ alone, we bid you to come and to celebrate with us as we commemorate the death and the burial, the resurrection, and the soon return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we bow before you this morning and as we prepare our hearts, Father, to partake together of this communion, we thank you, Lord, for all that it represents and symbolizes. We thank you, Father, that Jesus Christ came in the form of man and that he didn't play the part in a movie, but he became one of us and he experienced a tremendous amount of grief and sorrow and betrayal and rejection and pain. And as he lived his life with all those things, he then faced even a greater intensity of anguish. As he, Father, willingly for the first time, and we don't know how to describe it any other way, but he experienced what it's like to be separated from you. And he suffered immensely. And he did all of these things for us because of his great love for us because he desired for us to be reconciled to you. And Father, we sit here today, all ages, all types, all from various stations in life, but who are all in common are unworthy sinners and are the recipients of your grace and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask this morning that you would bless our time together here. And Fathers, we commemorate, and as we remember the suffering of Christ by the partaking of the bread which symbolizes his body, I pray, Lord, that you would remind us, that you would etch deep in our minds the image of a man whose flesh was being torn from his body by a cat of nine tails. That we would remember the man who experienced the blows of men who were punching him in various places of his body and face because of their hatred. The man, Lord, who at any moment could have stopped these things and yet did not, but endured all of them for our sake. A body, Lord, of a man who had committed no sin, had had not even had a sinful thought, 
and so was pure and unblemished in every way, who sacrificed himself for us. And we ask this morning that you bless the bread and bless each one who partakes as we do so, Father, out of reverence for you and with hearts that are filled with gratefulness. And we thank you. In the name of Christ, amen.